614 Startups Nation, welcome to another episode of the 614 Startups Podcast. My name is Elio Harmon, your host, and I have a very, very special guest in the building. I have been waiting for this conversation for some time, uh, and, and I'm excited. I think you guys are going to learn a lot. We have a very experienced entrepreneur joining us tonight, Mr. Paul Reeder, Executive Director of the Center for Innov Innovation Strategies at the Ohio State University Fisher College of Business. Before I introduce my guest, I do have to give a shout out to our featured partner tonight, Color Coded Labs. It's time for a better career in tech. Introducing Color Coded Labs, a 16-week boot camp that does more than teach basic code. It's a program designed to help you actually get a career in tech. At Color Coded Labs, we've removed all the barriers to help you learn the skills you need to start a career you love in weeks and not years all designed for people of color by people of color. Apply now at colorcodedlabs.com. All right, big shout out to Color Coded Labs, a brand new partner on the show. Great to have you guys as part of the 614 Startups family. So Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. Having listened to these uh, podcasts, I've got to, uh, you know, I've got to step up and, and, and make sure that we're uh, entertaining and informative. Listen, you with Ohio State, you're very clutch. I know that. No worries. You could handle the pressure, all right? Uh, you're <laughs> used to the big-time games over there. All right, so let's jump right into this thing. I wanted to bring in an experienced entrepreneur. You have the beard to prove it, all right? You've been in the game for some time now. Usually, I have the younger folks who are kind of on their first go-round. You know, they could use some wisdom, all right? But we're going to start with a bit of your background, personal and professional, and then we'll get into our conversation. Great. Go ahead and start. Where would you, wherever you'd oh, like I get to, to jump in. Okay. So, yeah. so I have a unique uh, pathway, I believe, um, in that I'm an industrial designer by education. And the reality of that degree um, is that it set me on a path immediately when I graduated from, from Ohio State to move to Silicon Valley before Silicon Valley really was what it's known for today. I mean, I moved out there to work for Hewlett Packard. Again, when, when tech was just starting to blow up and um, had an opportunity to, to work in a huge instrument division in Santa Clara. So what better than to start off a, a discussion around entrepreneurship than somebody who actually started their career, you know, in this uh, land of opportunity that every startup seems to think is also the, you know, the, the land of milk and honey, right? So that's how I started. I was a designer working for Hewlett Packard. We did our first startup then. Uh, concept uh, called Mailbox 24, where we put uh, commercial mailboxes in 7-Eleven stores. And uh, that didn't go so well. But you know what, when you're 22, this is what you have to do. You got to get out there and throw something, uh, you know, out into the world and, and see what see what works. Um, from from there, actually came back to, uh, to the Midwest and um, started to work for a, a company who did a product development innovation, specifically a, a firm that was a, a really wide-ranging design and development firm at the time. I mean, Federal Express was one of our largest clients, so we had an opportunity to work across a huge spectrum for, for them. Started my own uh, product development innovation firm um, in uh, 1989. I mean, imagine that, that this was, I launched a firm before maybe a lot of the listeners or other folks you've had on the show kind of were alive. But you know what? This is the thing I really want to stress is that age doesn't have a thing to do with your ability to be creative and and create a company, right? doesn't matter whether you're 22 or in my case, 60, that I can you know get out there and, and launch something new. 
And so to me, it was really exciting to be able to be working with all sorts of companies, creating new ideas for them. And I just continued to work upstream. Like it was never my thought to be, I was going to be this designer and I'm going to sit there at the end when somebody gives me a specification and build this thing out. We were always thinking about the business use case. Um, and so we actually decided to put our money where our mouth was. And we launched our first uh, true um, product, even though we have been running the consulting firm. So in some cases, you might consider that to be entrepreneurial. We didn't. I considered that I was generally unemployable. So I should try to, uh, you know, I'm the only one I'm going to be able to work for. So I should have my own firm. But then we decided that we wanted to really get into to, uh, to product development um, on our own terms. And so we launched our first actual product, uh, physical product in the sporting goods industry in 94. Uh, we were lucky, maybe lucky isn't the right word. You know, we were fortunate to have done a really good development process. And we were recognized with this IDA Gold Award by Business Week Magazine, and um, which really helped to launch the product because it got great press. And we were on the front page of the lifestyle section of New York Times when the first product launched. and. Uh, we were in the Washington Post and really got some great press for us, which got my career started as being recognized as, a, as an entrepreneur at the time, because it was, again, a bit of a rarity, I think, especially, specifically in the sporting goods industry to have a small Midwest company create a product and want to take on a company the size of Speedo. You know, I mean, this is, this is all the same, you know, context of coming into an industry that is, that was absolutely ruled by, you know, by one 90% market share kind of company. Um, however, it wasn't very niche, right? So it's not like I was jumping in against Microsoft. This was still a niche industry, but because I had such an interest in sporting goods that it was a great a great fit uh, for me. And then uh, we sold that company in uh, 2012 to, uh, to Aqualong. You know, this was the company that started by Jacques Cousteau, you know, the first guy to do uh, underwater scuba equipment. And then, um, and then that company also uh, brought in Michael Phelps, swimmer that people might be familiar with. And now he's taken all of our original products under his own MP brand. That's part of the Aquasphere line. So that's pretty exciting to see, you know, maybe the uh, best known and, and certainly the most accomplished swimmer training with our gear. And, um, and I came to Ohio State after we sold the company and finished up our consulting arrangement uh, that we had as part of our acquisition. We, uh, I came to Ohio State in 2012, and we launched a group called the Ideation Lab, where we were instrumental in helping to evaluate this uh, portfolio of 1,600-some uh, patents that the Ohio State owns and tried to identify um, startup potentials and or uh, platforms where we could use our design and development approach to accelerate a... Uh, towards a, a wider use of patent or accelerate the, the licensing as part of the tech transfer process at Ohio State. Then in to wrap this intro up uh, in 2016, we, I came in and we had created the um, Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship um, housed out of the Fisher College at Ohio State. And then in 2018, we decided to separate the two. There's now a Keenan Center for Entrepreneurship at Ohio State. And then we created the Center for Innovation Strategies, focusing more on an on a overarching innovation platform for our corporate partners. And the coolest thing about that transitioning is, back Leo, is that because of the way the center structure works at Ohio State, we're completely externally funded, which makes us a bit of a startup. Um, 
but a startup with a 150-year-old brand behind us. So isn't that a that's a that's a really good way to have a startup is a brand that everybody recognizes and a call that uh, most people will take when you uh, say you're from Ohio State. So yeah, is that a, a 150-year-old brand, right? A lot of goodwill in the community and a fanatical fan base, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the dog bowl is Ohio State. You know, the 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 sticker on the mailbox is Ohio State. Yeah. And so not a bad brand to well, walk. I mean, 600,000 600, alumni, you know, spread out across the world. There's not a single company that I that if I said I want to talk to somebody about some aspect of, of something we're working on that I can't call and generally at least get someone to answer my call. That that's that's a huge amount of power um, to be able to have. Um, to be able to get your foot in the door when you're really trying to, to launch a, a new venture, you know, within a large organization like Ohio State. So uh, when you mention HP, and this is a yeah. little bit kind of, uh, and I know you're in the kind of center for innovation, and you're dealing with a lot of corporations. I don't mean yeah. to have you kind of talk about something that might feel like throwing a company under the bus. But when yeah. you say HP, I mean in the, <laughs> I mean you're talking about a venerable company. Uh, and, and one of the things that came to mind was Jim Collins' book, Built to Last. Yeah. Uh, and I'm thinking culture at HP. So first yeah. job working at that venerable company, what were some of the takeaways culture-wise in terms of the way they thought, the way they saw the world? What were the, the, the things that really left an impression for with you working with that company then? And let's talk yeah. about what happens to companies over time that you can have a leader in a space that becomes a laggard. Yeah. Not calling you know, them a laggard, but maybe losing their no, position. No, I think that, yeah, of I where think they, are, they, they were before. Yeah, I think there was a lot of luster that was, that got um, muddled up with HP, right? Mm -hmm. the, the interesting thing for me, you got to think back. I mean, I started at HP in 1983. Um, you know, Hewlett and Packard were still alive. You know, I mean, I actually get to ride on an elevator with them. And so to me, Coming out of school, this was a great environment because it's it was a huge organization, no doubt, but it had the culture of a startup. And I know that that's really strange for people to say, "Well, when did HP have that?" Uh, you know, this was a this was a manufacturing division that had all of the other support functions in the same place. So it wasn't as if we were segregated away from the operations of the company. We got to see every part of how the company operated. Um, the other thing that they had that I it really struck me culturally is that they had this concept called management by wandering. I mean, they wanted you to go and wander around and talk to other people about what, what you did, what was your job, and what was the challenge that you had, and how can I help you with that? Now, that's a different culture than most people would come into a corporate culture within, right? Um, and project teams really considered startups. So our project team was seven people whose job it was to get that product launched. You know, yes, within a bigger structure, yes, within, you know, a different financial model of support, but you were still, you know, left to your own team to, to build that thing out. And so for me, it was a fantastic uh, culture to be within, uh, particularly because I got to work with software uh, engineers. I mean, I was one of the first designers at HP who was working on, on, on user experience and user, user interface on software systems. HP was the first company to do a touch screen on a personal computer, you know? And so I think what probably happened, and I'm certainly no, 
great scholar on the process at HP, but I think they forgot about the garage. You know, we always talked about the garage when I was there, that that's where Hewlett and Packard started and drove it. And um, I think companies forget about that. They, as they become public entity entities, they start thinking about shareholders and they quit thinking about end users and end customers and the empathy for that group. And, and you get lost in your mission, right? Yeah. Yeah, I get it. It's, it's hard to keep. It is very hard to keep because people yeah. come and go uh, and, and you know, times change and then, you know, you have pressure from the street and yeah. there are all, a, a lot of things that are, are constantly kind of a, you slowly but surely eroding some of the things that make a company great, yeah. including losing focus on what matters or maybe that core product or core customer trying yeah. to do many things. Oh, no, I think, you know, I think I talk a lot about the, to me, the the entrepreneurial paradox. A startup generally gets started because they believe there's something missing in a market that isn't addressed by, by a larger organization, right? But then the first thing so many startups start talking about is, how do I get my A round? How do I scale so I can be a big company? How can I be acquired by a big company? Isn't that a paradox? Like, I, this is partly why I'm drawn to lifestyle businesses so often because I like the lifestyle business that says I want to build a company for me. I want to run the company. I want to employ people. And so I think there's a real paradox in that in that notion of losing track of what your mission is when you're a startup and you begin to focus on focus on raising money instead of focus on finding the problem or focus on like let's start looking at revenue uh, revenue generation and not at funding everything. Right. I think that's a real challenge with startups to lose their mission. You know, they start falling in love with their solution instead of falling in love with the problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's kind of human nature kind of wars against that a little bit. Right. And, and I, I was just uh, had a conversation with Ryan Frederick and we had this extended conversation around finding your niche. Right. That core customer that you can grow with uh, and really build a company that solves a problem. Uh, and have customers that really, really have an affinity for your brand. Let's talk yeah. about going up against a giant, right? Because yeah. you've done that in your company, you've done it successfully. But uh, it was so funny when you sent me over uh, some notes about things that we could talk about. When somebody says I was sued by Speedo, <laughs> my mind automatically goes to the gutter. Like, what are you doing <laughs> with their products? that made them sue you. So uh, why don't you fill people in on what happened? Because it's- You know, it's funny, as a, as a startup, you know, as a startup, that was one of my favorite days. Um, I think it's partly because I was stupid. Um, but to me, to me being, when we got that letter from Speed's attorney saying that they were gonna sue us for copyright infringement, I was delighted. Now think about that. I was, and you're like, so you really were a stupid person, right? And it's like, no, no, because to me, that that biggest industry player, the person that I grew up, that the company that I grew up, you know, you ask anybody in the world, swimming speedo, swimming speedo, fantastic brand, good for the sport. I'm not going to complain about that. But the fact that they acknowledged that I was a threat, little tiny company making a couple of pieces of training equipment was a threat to them. Now you might say, you know, come on, this, you're not really a threat. We know that. But at some point, they spent some cash with some attorney to write a letter to, you know, to ask me to, to change the, the a particular product name that we were using that they felt was infringing on 
on the term speedo. And so it was really funny because my partner is an accountant and he was like, oh, no, no, this is bad. We got to just change the name. And I was like, no, man, we're sticking, to, we're staying our guns. Like, because if we think about this, this is nothing different than the bully in the, in the playground, you know, like we know they're big. They know we know they're big and they're expecting us to fold. I was like, no way, man. Like I'm legit. I'm keeping the name. Come after me. Right. And not only did they come after us, we won it, by the way, won the lawsuit. Um, but they came back three different times to try to buy us. Right. And that, and that, so I, I'm hopeful in some little tiny way, like as a startup standing my ground that um, I was saying to them, you know, look, I, um, I, I believe what I did was legit and I wasn't infringing on, on you. And I'm trying to, to rise all uh, boats with this tide and you should, you should embrace that. And ultimately they did. And, and they, they're good friends of mine still today. And I, and I actually really like that. But this is the funny thing I think with when you talk about competition that we were very lucky as a startup, I think partly because it's a bit of my personality that I don't overly like conflict that I became friends with all of our competitors and, and we're still friends today because they respected what I did. And I was always incredibly transparent about the challenges that we had as a startup and was looking for help, you know, in the industry to, to rise up with me. Now, Paul is a special case. Some of us would get a letter from a competitor and we would panic. Paul was excited. So this is a perfect segue into our next partner. Uh, and support for 614 Startups comes from the law firm of Dickinson Wright, with around 500 attorneys working from 19 offices across the US and Canada. They handle all types of business transactional law, including advising privately held and venture-backed companies in capital raising, mergers and acquisition, and transactions involving technology, software, data, and e-commerce. Partner Alex Brown serves as outside general counsel to startup companies ranging from business entity selection and formation, protection and commercialization of technology assets, conducting business online and data security issues. And I'm sure they'll help you with trademark and choosing your name so you don't get the letter like Paul probably did. Uh, for more information, visit DickinsonWright.com. All right, Paul, let's keep this thing going. Let's talk about innovation at Ohio State and your role there. Yeah, we have a really unique um, path, I believe, because when we decided to focus a center's activities on how do we create a innovation ecosystem with corporate partners and engaging a student population to try to create a um, you know a pathway for students that aren't necessarily taking courses in innovation. There's no major in innovation but it's on everybody's lips nowadays. So let's take um, corporate partners who want to have this pipeline and they in fact want to understand what these terms mean themselves and then create a center where we are both facilitating conversations about what innovation process really looks like and how to measure it and how to, to inspire up to your CEO to want to, to spend more and sponsor projects. And then how do we create programs, experiential programs for students to start to see what innovation really looks like. And this is where I think that I'm I'm really, really stoked to actually be on the program because I don't, I think that too oftentimes people believe entrepreneurship and innovation are, are really on different planes or that corporate innovation is different than startup entrepreneurship. It really, in my book, isn't. 
you're still going through a process of understanding and empathizing with your customer and, and really trying to unwind a problem and create a sustainable business case. The, just the end result's different. You're either going to launch a company yourself and be an entrepreneur, or you're going to bring that, that idea within a corporate setting where you can scale faster, you have deeper support, um, and that you can maybe, in fact, impact more people faster, right? And I think that's really, that to me is very interesting. And getting that concept in a student's head that they can create, uh, they can create a growth mindset that allows them to think of large scale problems without being intimidated, but having the confidence to be able to solve them. So that when they go in and they work for a Honda or an AEP or, you know, or JP Morgan Chase, that they can actually pose a new and unique idea and pose it in a way with supported customer validation, like they're a startup, that that company is going to take it seriously and consider putting it into their innovation portfolio of new products. Like there's a there's a very blurry line nowadays between startups and, and corporate innovation in my book. Yeah, and, I, and you see it everywhere. A lot of local companies uh, partnering with um, studios and, and venture funds and labs, yep. et cetera, to try to get that um, innovation engine jump started. So it sounds like if I have this correctly, when you're engaging with your corporate partners, the value to doing this is just that, right? This is an yeah. opportunity to spark innovation and have another channel by which innovation can uh, come your way, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I think this is, again, this, the, the, for me, the most interesting point of connection is when we, when you know, a corporate sponsor says, here's this challenge area that we want to explore with a, a student through our program called OnRamp. This is a challenge question that we want to explore. That challenge question is no different than a startup saying, I want to address this particular problem. And I think there's, there's going to be a market for that. Um, but what starts to happen is as we go through our 11-week accelerator, we find more and more people from that company showing up and saying, Tell me more about this. How did you do validation? Where did you find those customers? How do you translate data from an interview into an insight? How do you translate an insight into a business use case, right? So we're finding more people that are saying, I want to learn how to do that. And for us, the coolest thing, particularly being in a university our size, is that we have 15 colleges and, and our programs represent about 12 different of those colleges. So it's not as if we have a company coming to us and saying, you know, we work with with um, with Smuckers. So a Jam Smucker company comes to us, and they don't say we want only food science students. They say we want to, talk to business students, we want to talk to nursing students, we want to talk to a philosophy student. That diversity of thought is such a strong foundation to create new ideas. Um, and oftentimes, a company doesn't have that sort of diversity of mindset that allows them to be that um, widely exploring. And, and to be realistic, um, it's a challenge for a corporation to embrace this concept of, oh, we should fail fast and we should celebrate failure. Yeah, that's great up until, you know, your review time. And then somebody's like, mm, you know what, maybe that idea didn't really work very well. So where's your, where's your wins, right? So innovation is also a process of changing the culture within those organizations to embrace learning and not not just automatically put a, a standard business ROI on innovation. It's a, just a completely different approach. Yeah, and speaking of great Ohio companies, J.M. Smucker, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I just think jelly, 
But they, yeah. they, I mean, the reason why you think Jelly is because Smuckers is such a powerful brand on its own, but they yeah. have been able to stand up a lot of other global brands all yeah. under the Smucker umbrella. And to talk about innovation, their willingness to go into new markets. I know they have a pet food division and a lot yeah. of other things that a lot of people don't know. Yeah, coffee. Uh, I mean, they're one of the largest coffee producers in the U.S. I mean, right. And they're, right. and they're sitting right up in Orville, Ohio, in one of the most beautiful facilities you ever saw. And they, that is, is one of the most innovative companies. And you know why? I think it's because um, they are open-minded. <laughs> they are just flat out saying, I mean, when vice president of their, of their uh, 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 food R&D says to me, we know that if we don't begin to push innovation, how can we expect that GIF is going to be a strong brand in 10 years? You know, it's really easy for a company and we see evidence of it every day. This, my brand is so strong. I guarantee I'm certain that it'll be here in 10 years, you know, which my response is always, I'm certain it won't. <laughs> so that to me is the exciting thing. When you start to find those entrepreneurially minded people within these organizations and they are looking for supportives, a center like ours and students like ours that pose these just absolutely crazy ideas, um, and, and then the company says like, wow, that'd be cool if we could actually do that. Now imagine that that is really a startup idea. But then the company says, oh, but by the way, we have distribution in um, 16,000 outlets in the US that we can dump that into within two months. That's a much different scale model from a All startup. Right. So <laughs> let's talk now. Yeah, because that distribution, their ability to take an idea from just an idea to, to the marketplace, you know, yeah. it's phenomenal. Um, let's talk about the value proposition for the student. So now we understand it from the, the participating sponsor. Yeah. But from a student's perspective, um, how do you guys identify a student that would be a good fit for this program? Is there an application process? And then what do they get out of it? Yeah. You would say, hey, if you have any inclination uh, to start and grow businesses, this is something that you should do. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question because there was some concern when we when we launched OnRamp in the summer of 2018, the question was, could, do we think that we could attract a diverse enough population of students who would be interested? We had 20, 20 positions available at the time. We had 160 applicants <laughs> with one email, right? I mean, we have 2000 students in our database right now and have put about 350 students through the paid program. So this is not, this is not a class. This is an extracurricular, paid research project with a sponsor. The students get paid. We treat them like employees. They're under confidentiality. And what we say to them in the application is, tell us why you have an entrepreneurial mindset. And typically, if a, if a student says, well, I want to come be part of OnRamp because I want to work for company X, we say, well, look, this is not a placement service. What we want is for you to come in with a beginner's mindset. We want you to come in and play this S card, the student card, that allows you to not have the legacy of that company, to not worry about the problems of that company, and be willing to to explore any ideas that are going to that are going to be boiled out of this data. The other thing that we love about this, so if you start talking to students about, we're going to give you an opportunity to be paid. Okay, let's be realistic. Students need to get they need money, right? So if you have an opportunity to get paid, we're going to run you through a rigorous 11-week accelerator that, that I would put up against any accelerator in the country right now. And you're going to work with a, with a you know, Fortune 100 company who's going to listen to your pitch 
And at the end of it, you're going to be able to say to any next company, you start up or, or established firm, I've been through an accelerator. Here's the process that we've gone through. I understand design thinking and jobs to be done. And here's an example of, of an idea that, that we've put into practice. That's a pretty compelling position, I think, a pretty compelling idea to put in front of a student. And we've been really lucky to have students who just embody that, that mindset. You know, this is something I think I want to really push out there. Uh, I love Venture for America, that program that puts students into startups, because I think too many people are really quick to want to dismiss a 20-year-old or 21-year-old, you know, you know what, go talk to someone. They're brilliant. <laughs> They're absolutely and, and if you give them an opportunity to say, I'm going to show you a process that you, you can start to explore you know, a, a, a concept space with a particular audience. And then I don't do it for them. We say, it's on you. You go, you go do that. They go do it. And they come back with crazy insights because people don't lie to students. You know, you know this, the work you're in. If you send out a professional market research firm, not dismissing professional market research, they have a great position. But you know, your average person wants to lie to them about what they ate for breakfast that morning. People don't lie to students. They tell them the truth. And then students don't know to candy coat the response, right? Because they're not trying to sell the next project. And student says, you told me this. I'm going to write down what you said verbatim. And I'm going to take my insight from that. I'm not going to try to use that as, you know, the, the, the nail that I'm going to try to hammer in later. Like they don't, they don't start off with a solution. And that's, there's a, there's a beginner mindset to that. That's so refreshing. Um, and that's probably the one thing we try to protect the most because I know, and, and I literally just placed a student today, hopefully with a startup. And it was driven on the idea that look, this student, it was willing to try anything and, and will, is so highly, highly productive that this will be a valuable asset for you from day one. That, that to me is exciting, you know? That's terrific. Have you ever had a situation where a company was so impressed by the work of a team that they wanted to snatch them like day one for the execution of whatever idea they came up with? Yeah, we've had um, right now pushing 20 of our of our students actually move into positions with our with our sponsors. And of course, we love that, you know, because what we want to do, we want to, to enable those students. We have a, we have a particular who had a heavy engineering um, background. He had a job with a, with a huge corporation down in Cincinnati, you know, in P&G. And he said, you know what? I love this innovation process, but I'm not sure that my job at P&G is going to support that because I'm going to be working in an engineering role. And we said, well, let's, let's make sure that we connect you and that you get connected with the innovation folks at P&G. In less than two years, he's working as, a, you know, as, as an internal, you know, essentially an entrepreneur in residence for PNG, doing something completely different than what he what he had as his major, but absolutely driven out of what he picked up through going through three semesters of of accelerators with us. And he was a spectacular young guy. Like, you know, this he was going to end up doing great things wherever he went. So to me, that's the exciting thing is that we can put students out, and they've gone through a rigorous process, and they can speak a language within a large corporation that they've not heard about or relating to essentially startup principles, right? Identifying the problem, being comfortable with the fuzzy front end, 
creating customer validation. You know, these are these are terms that are still a bit of a mystery to a lot of big companies. And so I love the fact that we can create this whole core of, of entrepreneurs and then give them an opportunity realistically to go work for a company and maybe pay off their student loans. Because <laughs> uh, I think that's an important thing mm-hmm. and, and or go out and work for a startup and be and be impactful from right off the start. Like that's that's fantastic. I mean, you can see that I'm passionate about it, right? Because oh, yeah. to me, this is, I mean, maybe it's more exciting than anything I've done in my career because I get to work with these with these students that just come up with stuff that you go, oh my God, I never would have got that, <laughs> right? That's, that's super fun. Now, before we wrap, I have a very important question for you. I'm gonna give you some time to think about this, right? What is the value of a college education. Hold that thought. One more final break here while you think about it in a word from our sponsor. So at 614 Startups, we're doing a lot of, we're making a lot of changes. Some of those changes include a new website, a rebrand, updates in marketing and growth strategy. Undertaking all that marketing is a lot to do as a founder and sometimes it's overwhelming. So naturally I turn to our sponsor, Studio MFP for help in order for us to take our branding and marketing to the next level. Check them out for a free consultation at studiomfp.com and start growing your business today. All right, sir. All right, one of the most important issues of the 21st century, the value of a college education. What are your thoughts on that? The value of a college education, that is really a, a huge question. I think I have two thoughtful answers to, right? Particularly related to entrepreneurship because entrepreneurs will be very quick to say, quit school, get out there, start launching your company, go at it, go at it, go at it. You know, I don't disagree. That's what you're going to do if you've got something that's good. But the reality is that doesn't fit to most 18, 19, 20-year-olds because of two things. They don't have a network yet, right? I mean, think about your network. And think about the importance of being able to find people to support you at, at all different aspects of your company as you grow your company, right? So we look at that as maybe the one the one most important thing that we want you to gain. We want that that you know 18 to 22 or 23 year old to build is this network. And it's not just a network of, of their peers, but we encourage them, like go out, listen to your podcast, go to Rev One's events, go to pitch competitions build a network of people that recognize you and your interest in, in engaging that, that community. So that's the first thing, build your network and, and begin to make industry connections. And the second, and this is um, a subtle answer to, to me, a really, really important question that gets answered to, it gets answered in all sorts of ways. When people say, well, you know, stay in school and get a degree. You know, I'm not worried about staying in school and getting a degree. What I want them to do is stay in school and develop a deep subject matter expertise in something, right? I'm a, I'm a really firm believer in the T-shaped individual. Show me a broad, broad level of interest and understanding of a lot of different topics, but give me some deep matter expertise. I'm a designer by background. I never paid for a website, a logo, a product, a CAD file, right? I want that student to have a deep, expertise in something that they don't have to pay for later when they've started their startup. And they may say, oh, but I, you know, I, I came up with the idea. I'm the, ins- I have the inspiration. Yeah. Well, after that, what good are you to your own startup? Because you're going to start paying for everything. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got an accounting degree, guess what? You've just taken a huge number off your books, right? If you can, if you can program, fantastic. You've taken that, that off your books. You can actually be an asset, a skill asset to your own startup by having some deep matter, deep subject matter expertise that I believe you can learn through a college education. And it's again, it's it's demonstrated through proficiency, not through a diploma. So how's that for an answer? I, I, it's a, it's it's a ringing endorsement uh, for um, the college experience. I, I still uh, do believe that there is a tremendous amount of value uh, in the college experience, but I think for the future uh, that we're building and taking what we knew from the apprenticeship kind of era of education, the yeah. vocational technical aspects of education and integrating it more with the academics where they're doing the practical things like working on a project for an actual company, not a case study in the abstract, right? Correct, correct. Real companies, real customers, real world implications. I think we can get a lot more students excited about going to school because the work that they're doing in school has a real world uh, impact. All right, Paul, listen, I want to cover so many more things with you. Maybe you can extend the invitation. I'll come out to the center. Maybe you can do the interviewing next time because there's love so that. much to talk about, but we got a wrap right here. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, that's a wrap, folks. You can find this in all of our episodes on our website, 614startups.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and all your favorite podcasting platforms. Don't forget to subscribe and write a review. If you would like to have updates sent to your inbox, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter on the website. To engage in the 614 Startups community, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at 614 Startups uh, to join the conversation. For sponsorship opportunities, so many great sponsors and collaborations, email us at info at 614startups.com. Almost forgot to do this, Paul. I always do my one takeaway. And listen, when you are a threat, be on the lookout for the big dogs in your industry trying to intimidate you, but stick to your guns, never be intimidated, believe in your dreams. All right, folks, thank you for joining me on another episode. Peace. All right, great work, Paul. Good, I didn't drone on too long, right? You can edit that down to a, oh, no, few, man. a few good pieces. Uh, that's what everybody everybody thinks their podcast is going to sound other than it will and i think you did a wonderful job you're going to love it thank you i think it's going to play well with um both your sponsor audience right about the value that they're getting from it and then also the students who are either participants or interested in participating but on the fence yeah i think it's going to (laughs) represent okay (laughs) ski yeah you got some value from it okay Okay. Come on on this side, man. Say, Come say on this side so I can hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, actually, you know, Elio, I think one of the, maybe some of the greatest impact is in other startups who say like, mm, I didn't know really that I wanted a, I don't know if I want a kid out of school. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, are you kidding? Like, you know, take, uh, take one of ours. Like they'll kill you. You know, they're gonna, you, can, you can't believe the amount of work they can produce. Hey, Hey, Paul, George here. Man, there was a lot of things you were saying. I was starting a list uh, of things that I say that too. I say that too. You know, the rising tide. uh, You learn a lot from a 
from a kid, you know, just so many things that I resonated with, with what you were saying. We actually have a, a entrepreneur support organization here for lifestyle businesses, another oh, key great. word you said. Yeah. Um, and it was like an open market, right? Nobody seemed to be focusing on these. So here you say that, right. that you loved lifestyle businesses. I was like, oh, I want to really talk to this guy. And, you know, I remember all the history you went back to, right? So the H yeah. and the P. I, I remember when they were separate companies, the whole nine, uh, the garage game. So yeah. I just thought it would be yeah. really cool to get a get a block of your time to chat with you and share oh, I love stories that. and talk about, you know, present day and future state of yeah. entrepreneurship. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it. Again, I, I think that... Uh, there's a whole other conversation about about lifestyle businesses, and I, you know, I don't want to ever take away from the tech business, but I think too oftentimes, particularly living in Columbus, I mean, look at all the restaurant. I mean, there, some of the startups in Columbus are restaurants, right? Yeah. And and I think occasionally, at least I feel it with our students that they are sort of dismissive of themselves when they think of a lifestyle business, and I'm like, you know what? Or a product, an actual physical product, like. Oh, I want to develop this physical product, but you know, nobody wants to do that. That's not very romantic. I'm like, you know what, man? Physical product. Yeah. <laughs> made a, made a little cash on that one, right? Yeah. So this is really important that we want to encourage like all of this, not just, well, you know, create a tech, go for your A round, scale, 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 right? Mm-hmm. No, like create a create a company where there's a need, make scale through creating revenue and impact and hire a bunch of people. Right. I like that. (laughs) So, you know, I'm going to track you down and I'll probably, I'll make the intro. I'll make the intro and then you guys get it together. But the work that um, George, he goes by ski uh, and the team are doing here at the U is absolutely amazing. Talk about somebody who will represent a great guest speaker to come here and bring some of that thinking that you guys are applying at Ohio state and applying it here for these lifestyle businesses. I think uh, at scale, what the you would like would be to bring people through um, workshops, uh, boot camps, yeah. yep. and then have the revenue or the, the capital to invest back into those business and scale strategic businesses within yeah. a particularly black community. So, yeah. um, you know, black owned gas station, uh, black owned dry cleaners, black owned car washes. And so yeah. those lifestyle businesses that right now are not the rave, right, right in the whole yeah. startup world, but really are needed for uh, creating sustainable communities. Strong economy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, think about every every IGA store that was on the corner of every neighborhood when I was growing up, right? That's a family business. That Somebody said, I need to create a grocery store in my neighborhood and it's going to be an IGA, right? Mm-hmm. Think about the fact that, that that person who got that IGA store, they also form a center of information for other startups in the area, right? Mm-hmm. Because everybody knows the person who ran, who's got that that IGA and they're running, and they're like, "Okay, I want to start a, um, I'm to start a small, uh, you know, repair shop, but I don't really know about like how do I even go to a bank and get some money? Go down and ask the guy at the IGA, you know? Yeah. I mean, the reality is that those are that's a bit of how." communities need to work. They create their own supportive mentoring system by your next door neighbor, by the guy across the street who's been in the business a long time. You know, I I, I don't want to keep you forever because I could. I worked with an electrical contractor with some money that we got with the city to help small businesses. And I said, I'll put this guy up in front of any MBA class any day because he's been a small electrical contractor. For he's faced problem that they've only read about, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, and the, and, and the unfortunate part again, is that like, 
he never thought that he was running a very good business. I'm like, are you kidding? You've supported yourself and the people you work for and your kids went to college for 20 years and it was on your back. Mm -hmm. Don't talk to me about like you weren't successful. Not to mention the people he impacted, none of least, which is his kids, right? They got to see that growing up, but now it's exponential the way it grows out. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point is that when he hires an apprentice and the apprentice sees that he got a company started, the apprentice says, you know what? I I really want to start installing, um, you know, solar panels for people who buy Teslas. Great. Go do it. Get your certification, go out there and do it. And he's given them that confidence and that, that entrepreneurial education is really invaluable. And I, and I do worry about that being lost sometime in the messaging, you know, um, but I, but I also think there's room for everybody. You know, if Rev One wants to focus on tech, 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 fantastic, go do it. But that's why we need another accelerator that's looking at lifestyle. Or Michael yeah. Red right now, you know, creating 22 ventures, looking at sports, um, like beautiful. That that that. Yeah, that of, new complex you just got. Uh, I was gonna say last year, but 2020 is like a wash. But year before last, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you know, like all good stuff, sponsors, man. Um, Scott's Miracle Bro. Uh, you know, having, you know, we could potentially fund a lawn care company out of here. And naturally that's going to, you know, be a partnership with Scott's Miracle Grow and things like that. So that, that's what we're thinking about. But we like the fact that you're uh, interested in seeing more accelerators, more venture capital yeah. or yeah. into lifestyle businesses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah don't, 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 don't ever discount. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, I mean, Scott's spent a billion dollars in the last three years in the cannabis business. Like they are going to be one of the biggest players in in cannabis growth, and and not, you know not just you know not just a THC base, but but also industrial hemp, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they are sorting all this out, and they're one of big one of the first big Fortune 200 companies to actually invest that kind of money, and and you know we did an accelerator, which is a whole other conversation on uh, called Cannabis. That was how do we how do we identify problems that are emerging in the cannabis industry that could be approach as legitimate businesses without people snickering about smoking weed, you know, mm-hmm. like how do we actually create cannabis businesses? So thank you so much for letting me yeah, 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 uh, yeah. You know, expose for, for right. you. Look forward <laughs> to hearing, hearing from you. Have me. a good night. Okay. All right, man. Talk to you later. Appreciate you. Good shit.